I would be, unless it is a stellar cast, I probably won't go see La Boheme again. But if mm. I was given the opportunity to sing Rodolfo again, oh, absolutely. Mm. If I was given an opportunity just to, see, to sing the third act with a quartet, absolutely. I might not ever even listen to the whole thing again. I, it's boiled down to the third act for me. Yeah, it's a that's that's a that one of the most for Bohem. That's my guilty pleasure. The rest of it is now in the the third act of Bohem is such a concise, dramatic construction. It is. It's just it's perfect. It is so good. The way the two characters enter the the act apart and two of them together, and then through yeah. the act they they change trajectories mm -hmm. and they they each end up in the opposite condition together yeah. and apart. It, yeah. It's it's just wonderful. Yeah. Dramatics. Another uh, opera guilty pleasure. No, not a guilty pleasure. One I won't. I would choose not to listen to again. <clears throat> is right of the right of the Valkyries. Yeah, I don't. I, well, I don't. I, I would love to hear it in the context the of a entire, performance. Yes, the entire opera I will listen. I have to no to use for, for it as life. a as a concert, but piece not as a because concert piece. yeah. Boy, we've got a wild cat at the door. We do. I think maybe yeah, we should let him. bottle. <laughs> so we have a new member of the uh, rebellion. That's right, catical rebellion. Catical, yes. <laughs> Let your voice be heard. I'd always like to hear Falstaff. Um, I'm, yeah, that one. It's not as. But it, you have. But you, yeah, like you said, you I'm, have to I'm have the right Falstaff. I mean, yeah. but I'd like to hear Falstaff in like a thousand, a one thousand seat theater mm. with a baritone, the quality of what we had here. That guy was good. Yeah. And he barked that thing out to three thousand seats convincingly. But mm -hmm. and that was tough. Yeah. But I, I would, it would have been a, a much different because it's effectively a chamber opera that Verdi mm. was kind enough to put the chorus in to give people some work, but they're not right. necessary. Do you know the story behind the string quartet? Um, something about he was staying at a hotel. Yeah, so the Aida in in uh, Naples was delayed because the, the soprano was ill. Stoltz, Teresa Stoltz. Okay. And uh, so he just wrote the string quartet in the meantime, in March. And uh, was premiered in his hotel room for about seven or eight companions <laughs> on April 1st, I did 1783. Hear, I did hear that he said something to the effect of... Um, um, Somebody said, it's a work of genius. He said, I don't know if it's a work of genius or not. I just know it's a quartet. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> just, yeah. It's a quartet. It's a quartet. But I do think it's a work of genius. I think it's a remarkably um, succinct and well-motivated piece of music. It just drives right through. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I listened to it after you recommended it. It's fun. And, uh, but I would like to, I, I think you could orchestrate it as a chamber symphony, you know, with woodwinds and some brass. And, and mm -hmm. it would be, it, there's it something work. in it for everybody. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a shame it's never been done. So we've gotten off guilty pleasures, and now we're just tangentializing. Yes, yeah, so guilty pleasures. So well, I think I covered five. Um, Are we doing just five? Okay. We were we were sort of talking about guilty operas. There's a lot of guilt in opera. There should be. They're terrible people. <laughs> they are. <laughs> <laughs> opera characters are just terrible people. Yeah. Especially baritones. I mean, you know. Yeah. They're always abducting a soprano someplace. Yeah, um, so guilty. So I butterfly is a guilty pleasure. Tosca, is a, all the Puccini's are guilty pleasures. Yeah, really. yeah, they are. I'm not saying they're not without artistic merit, but for whatever reason, 
I always I feel commented, guilty. <laughs> I commented this week on, on, on somebody, Dallas Opera put up a thing about talking about, you know, where is opera going? Are millennials going to kill opera too? Oh. And, you know, I, I reposted to that. They're I said, not because classical rebellion is rebelling against. That's right. Classical rebellion is empowering millennials. Yes. To actually, hopefully to stimulate and spur them to, uh, to, to develop an appreciation for opera beyond what hidebound and economically intransigent opera companies are willing to give them. Is, is that succinct enough? That was impressive. Thank you. Well, it's the truth. Because it's not millennials. And someone else, and I, I might have said it myself, but someone else said, it's not millennials that are killing opera. Opera companies are killing opera. Yeah. And that's the truth. Yeah. Because they're allowing themselves to be bound by economics in theaters that, that do not necessarily fit the profile of the company. Uh, and they're, they're not getting... I mean, look, you can do AIDA... If you can do AIDA in the, in the La Fenice in Venice <laughs> at 900 seats, you can do it in the Balboa. You can yeah, do it in, 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 the in, theater, in a number of seats. different places. Yeah. It doesn't have to... Not every theater has to be the, the Met. Opera. You know, the multi-use American Civic Theater Auditorium is not necessarily the model for mandatory operatic production. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't have to be. And that's that does not reflect on the capacity or value of an opera company's presentations. Audiences need to understand that. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be in a stadium to be at a concert, you know? Right. That was, you know, the who in the 1980s, you know, it's not a concert that I'm going to go to, but nevertheless, um, you know, I was more like, you know, the English beat at the country club up in L.A. But nevertheless, uh, it, it, it doesn't have to be 3,000 seats. So find another way to, to, to get to, 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 to adjust your size so you can get a variety of different material on stage for mm -hmm. audiences so they can hear it. They've got to hear it. Yeah. We've still never heard La Jaconda in this city. You know, yeah. there's a. Crap ton. And the other thing, you know, and, but what I did say is that has anyone thought of writing a comedy, perhaps? You know, I mean, we all know that opera likes to be taken very seriously yeah. and it likes to address the very serious issues. But audiences do like to laugh now and again, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, an, another Offenbach or maybe even an Arthur Sullivan w would go a long way towards cheering things up around here. Or another Mozart. Or another Mozart. But it. It, Magic it, flute is funny. Don Giovanni is funny. My, my point Cozy is, Fantute is it's all mistaken identity. And which, somebody else, but it's still funny. But somebody else then said, uh, Jake Heggie wrote Great Scott, and it was done here at Dallas Opera a few years ago. That was pretty maybe, funny. He said, maybe you missed it, and I said, I was in it. Oh, in San Diego. Take now, that, son. <laughs> no, but, and look, the audience liked it. They laughed I at it. I loved it. I thought, My kid, children laughed at it. It only drew two-thirds of the house at the Civic Theater. Well, that's um, but, San Diego. But, but, the audience did like it. It was fantastic. However. I loved it. However, however, is there a Largo al Factotum in that comedy? Is there an Una Voce Poco Fa in that opera? No, there's mm, not. Yeah. Now, it's, but so, it's a singer's opera. You've got it's to have... It's a singable opera. It's, it, it does sing. You've got to have more than one offering. I'm sorry. You can't say that opera has produced comedy. No, you've produced one comedy mm -hmm. since, like, Albert Herring. 
one comedy. Okay? You've got to... When we look back at all of these things that we're saying, you know, this is a guilty pleasure that I never want to hear again. Mm -hmm. This, is, but, but you heard it in the first place. You did. This is a guilty pleasure that I would l listen to any time. You know, the, the standard 200 operas in the repertoire, more or less, are part of probably 20,000 operas that were written <laughs> yeah. between 1700 Here's one and, for you. and 1900. How many operas did Haydn compose? Joseph Haydn. Let, let me let me take a guess. I think I've heard this before. Um, was it like uh, 20, 22? 15. 15, okay. 15. The last of which was written in 1791, right before he went to London for the first time. Right. But And he composed it for that event. Like King George III uh, didn't want to hear it. Or there was something with the Prince of Wales and they had a... Yeah, so it was never performed... The creation becomes dominant, the London symphonies become dominant, and that's what, and Haydn becomes a rock right. star in, in, in England. It isn't premiered for 160 years, at which huh? point Eric Kleiber conducts and Maria Callas is in 1951, 160 right. years after the fact. But you, so you, it just goes to show, and, and that's also... That's Joseph Haydn. Haydn. That's not a... Uh, that's not. No, that's not. That's not inconsequential. Right. It's like Joe Blow who wrote one opera. Right. You know. No. It's you've you've got to have more on the plate if you want to have to find the hits. You've got to go through a lot of music. A lot of music. You can't just say, "Aha, we found the perfect idea. Right. This is going to be the comedy for this decade." Good luck with that. What? It doesn't happen like that. Yeah. How many? I mean, you, you could also say The Ghosts of Versailles by John Coragliano, except that that has proved to be, you know... It's impossible to produce. Even less of a contribution than Great Scott was. I mean... Yeah. It's... So, you know, we've got... You've, you've got to get people writing. Yeah. You've got to get it writing. And, you know, opera houses are so stuck with having to produce the ABC, Aida Bohem Carmen, yeah. that, that they... There's, they're kind of like the London theaters, which are, you know, like Les Mis plays for 22 <laughs> years at, you know, at the Cambridge Theater and Oxford Circus. I mean, or at, at um, the Palace in Oxford Circus. Every theater in London is so blocked up long term, who's writing musicals nowadays? Mm -hmm. Other than a jukebox musical, yeah, you know, that's the ABBA, whatever. Yeah. The, the problem is you've got to, there has to be a flow. Uh, there, there ought to be a law that says no theatrical piece can occupy a London theater longer than five months or something. After that, <laughs> get out on tour. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, but... Got to bring new yeah. people in here. But if the market will support it. Well, it's not... The thing is, it's the tourist market That's true. that is supporting it. It's so intimately tied to tourism mm -hmm. that it has killed the production of musical theater. Yeah. It has killed it. It's dead. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. And, what's the... I mean... I guess and and the same thing kind of applies to operas. Good luck getting a new work on. on, on, on let's, hey, let's take a chance on this guy's comedy. See if people like it. Because... It costs an arm and a leg. It's it a costs million an arm dollars to produce an opera. It costs an arm and a leg. And they've got to, produ they've got to produce Aida, Bohem, or Carmen. Because it's got, that's the only way their audience is going to come. Because those are the only three operas they know. Yeah. Well, because they don't hear anything else. Yeah, it's not their fault. No, well, it's it not their fault. It, it's, it is and it isn't. It's partly their fault. 
it's partly everybody's fault, but we, if you want to change the culture, we've got to get more opera being written so that people say, I've got to write their opera company, goes, I've got to hear that aria. We've got to have yeah. that aria here. Yeah, I was going to say, so what did Verdi write? Three operas before Falstaff? I mean, um, Nabucco? Un giorno di regna, Oberto Conte di San Bonifacio, and... Uh, There's a comedy and he quit. That was Un giorno di regna. Okay, so then two. I mean, you know, he wrote it. He wrote it. It just wasn't very good. Yeah, and he quit afterward because it was so panned. Right. And then and he, then he wrote Oberto. And Oberto... Oh, no, Oberto came after Un giorno di regna. Oh, it did? Yeah. Okay. Oberto Conte di San Bonifacio actually was Ferruccio Furlanetto's first opera in, in San, San Diego. Diego yeah. And I was in it. And let me tell you, what I've rarely heard anything as beautiful yeah. uh, as, as that guy's... The top of that guy's bass voice. Mm-hmm. Um but so, uh, so I can't remember three. what the third was. So it. And then he writes, and then he writes Nabucco. Nabucco. So and Wagner, same thing. I think there's three. There's the fairies. There's Rienzi or Diffine. Diffine. Rienzi. Um, the the loves. Das Liebesverbot. Yeah, and then Dutchman. And then Dutchman. Yeah. And then. Well, you know the the, I get the audacity of Wagner, the sheer audacity. You know, he took the post in was it Dresden. Mm-hmm. He'd never conducted an opera before. He gets there, he and was, yeah. he gets there, and in two weeks he's tasked. You got to lead Don Giovanni. Yeah. Well, he's he is credited with putting Beethoven's Ninth on the map in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His interpretation conducting yes. Beethoven's Ninth. But listen to the Wagner Symphony in C Major. That's a great piece. It's written by a nineteen-year-old. Yes. It is the most aggressive first symphony until that point. The only thing that exceeds it. After would be Bruckner's first symphony. You mean the the zero, the symphony zero, the study symphony? No. Or, or the, the number, number one. one. Right, okay. And then Mahler's number one. Brahms doesn't count. He was a very established composer by the time he wrote his first symphony. Right. He's in his 40s. If you've um, never listened... But it's so... I was like, this is... Name me a Mendelssohn symphony that exceeds this. Well, certainly not the Reformation. No. No. <laughs> no, the only one... No, maybe... That's... I don't think the Scottish does. Maybe the Italian symphony. Maybe. That's a, that's a bit of a, of, of a guilty pleasure for me, is the Italian yeah. symphony. I do like that. The first movement's great. Yeah, it's... The way yeah. it just sparkles. It's kind of like the beginning of the the, the fountains of Rome. That's a guilty pleasure. The Roman trilogy. Oh yes. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's that, that's meat. That's sheer meat. Yeah. That's just meat. The pines of Rome is when the Roman army goes marching by. It, were you there? You weren't there. I was not the there. The symphony one. did it because the, the they put the horns. It, it, oh, on the sides at the bottom of the um, uh, above the grand above the grand tier below the mezzanine, and it was. Oh, I'm sure it, it was, was fantastic. Fanta- I was like, that's one of those. It's, it's serotonin. It's whatever you feel when you like 
oh, we just won. Adrenaline. We, we just fucking won. That's, <laughs> that's what. That's what I felt in that concert, man. It was spectacular, and I was like, man. I, I started looking for other performances. I could like we won the concert. Yeah, like where there's where someone else playing it. We're I'll go. One. We're <laughs> number one. USA, USA. Wait, SD, Italy, Italy. SD Sim, SD Sim, San Diego Symphony. Oh, SD Sim. No, but I mean, yeah, um, we've. Yeah, but the Wagner that symphony in C is. I'll tell you. I'll tell for you something. For a nineteen-year-old composition, for composition by a nineteen-year-old, it's significant. Uh, oh, absolutely, it is. It's a it, it's an underperformed piece. People should do it. Yeah. People should do I it. I don't right? need to hear the Brahms symphonies again as much as. I appreciate them. No, I, I love the second, but not the rest. Wagner's Wagner's Symphony in C is a is a wonderful piece and very much underheard. Mm-hmm. Terrific motivation, great form, great themes. Great pathos in the second movement. It's. Um, I'll tell you, it, it just just on the th- on the subject of first symphonies. Mm-hmm. Um, gee, we're not digressing, are we? Uh, but <laughs> Wagner, you mentioned um, Bruckner, Bruckner Mahler. Mahler. Well, Mahler. If you, I don't it, love his first symphony. No, but have you ever listened to the symphony by uh, a by a young man named Hans Roth? Oh yeah, it's... Brahms made him commit suicide. Did he really? Well, well he, he came to Brahms and Brahms that, beat him up, as was Brahms. That manuscript, Brahms that manuscript went yeah. unpublished for a very long time, and I think mm-hmm. it was first recorded on Hyperion, you know, in back the in the in the nineties. Yeah, but I find it. Very, it's, a, it's, it's a good piece. I find it very... Um, I salute you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I find it very unlikely that Mahler had not seen that score. Oh, right. They were certainly close. They, and they there's, if you listen to the way that young man uses the trumpets in certain places, some of his unfolding chord modulations mm. and things, key modulations, it's very Mahlerian. I'm not saying that Mahler stole that. I'm saying Mahler saw that score and was influenced by it.
Perhaps, and I think yeah. I think he saw new possibilities mm-hmm. as a result of that score. Right. Uh, and that's it's not a detraction from Mahler; it's a tribute to Hans Roth. Mm, yeah. Because Mahler, you know, lived a full life and was able to to really act on on that. Mm-hmm. But um, we're all all composers are influenced by one thing or another. But I I detected a very strong influence of in that on on Mahler and mm-hmm. in a good way, in right. a really good way. Um, that's a fascinating piece. It is. I mean, if that kid had lived, you, who knows? We we who might knows? have had either two Mahlers, or we might have had a Rote, and then mm-hmm. Mahler might have been something else. Yeah. So. Um, no. Uh, oh, my mind is a bit blank yeah. on operas this evening. I'm not really in the opera mode. Yeah. Um, also, Sprague, Zarathustra, Einhelden. No, I don't need that. I would listen to Death and Transfiguration again, though. It's a guilty pleasure, though. <laughs> Talk about guilty pleasures. What about the, <laughs> the Richard Strauss Domestic Symphony? I've never really listened to that. Well, probably there's a scene in it where he's he and his wife are you know, having a bit of... Mm, a bit of sharing? A bit of intimate sharing, yes. A bit of rumpy pumpy going on. That's <laughs> <laughs> just... It's rated she. <laughs> well, speaking of operas, the... Um, um, shoot. Intermezzo by Strauss ah. is some of his best music, but it's really poor taste because he depicts his wife as shrill and alarmist. And <laughs> it's it's really quite critical and sexist, the way mm-hmm. that character is portrayed. But the music is... I'm trying to remember. There was somebody... Um, some con- Another musician or conductor, I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, someone... Um, Someone criti- uh, said something either laudatory or, or critical about about um, Richard Strauss, and he said, "Trust me, I played cards with him every night for twenty years. The man was a pig." <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's what he said. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. He had that little like molester mustache. <laughs> Just when he was young, that little like the thin like like oh, that guy. Well, he was preternaturally facile as a con- as a composer and you know i love rosen cavalier though I'm gonna oh go so see do it. I. i'm gonna go see it at the met i remember hearing john john tomlinson at the eno as hans Sachs in the 19 early 1990s hans Sachs. Uh, uh, and uh, baron ox ah ox not socks ox right and it was just wonderful they, yeah. they they did it in an english country house setting in edwardian costume mm-hmm. and it was just fantastic yeah just fantastic i will say the Italian singer probably will not be sung by a person of Luciano Pavarotti's status, which is what used to happen at the Met. He would just come sing that first act, which <laughs> you're just like, what? <laughs> Pavarotti singing the Italian singer in Rosen Cavalier. Like, come on. Come on. <laughs> That's good stuff. It's funny. Of course, to... he lived right there in the Essex house. And, you know, oh, so he just. It's funny to see. The video of uh, Pavarotti in, in Moscow in like 1964, 65. Oh, yeah. We know, will watch the documentary. It we'll just, get to it was that. Out of, it wasn't in theaters by the time we could have run to it. Yeah, yeah. It, we had a very short run. Um, it was at least a month in the theaters. But, but um, you know, he's so trim and so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and, and just so. He incredible. almost died as a child, though. 
He almost died in a plane crash once um, too. But he stepped on a on a nail or something playing soccer or football. Oh really? Yeah, barefoot, and was was close. Hmm. Did he get tetanus or something? That's why his thing with the nails. So I there is a German. Pavarotti Elaborate. documentary on Amazon. Okay. Which I watched. It's probably better than the Ron Howard. Uh, it was probably more fair and not quite as laudatory. More balanced. Um, but he would always, the crew would put nails out, bent nails for him to find, and he would always pick up a nail and, and have it in his pocket. It was this talisman type thing. He had this collection of nails that he collected over his career. Really? And it goes back to that when he was 11 or 12. Huh. No, I had not heard that. Yeah. I had not heard that. Yeah. Well, he was in a plane crash once as well. Hmm. And uh, in, in I think coming into Modena or something. And he was in a DC-3 or something. And the huh. the plane crashed and the, the front end of the plane broke off. And like his seat was exposed. Wow. He was just hanging out right there or something. And he, he almost huh. bought it then too. That was in the early 60s. Okay. Um, yeah, some, something about the Italians and crashes. Because Puccini had that car crash. He almost died in in the car. And Puccini did. Did he? Yeah. Yeah. It. It's a bit. It's. Hmm. Fascinating. That's an. That's for another day, though. The the character of Liu, based on reality. Oh yes. Well, that's a bit unfortunate. But, yeah. Um, yeah. We'll get to. We'll get to that. that. We'll get to that. We're we'll so full that. of I mean, you know, rosé. <laughs> when you start talking about the moral and ethical character of um, of, of anyone of, of anyone really, yeah, it, it's very difficult to to who's got two what's got two thumbs and a spotty moral character. The what? This guy. <laughs> this guy. Um, no one's perfect, obviously, um, and we're not necessarily here to i mean we're not here to be revisionist and to okay we're here to judge people we're not here to condemn anyone there's a big difference right. well you should to, be judging i think we're here as to, a human you need to be judging at all times you need not condemn though that's true i mean you that's not not the brief here the brief is to appreciate their works mm -hmm. and you know puccini was let's put it this way as flawed as anyone uh Yes, but the, the character of Liu has has definite criticizable aspects. It's complete conjecture, but I really do believe it because of that, that he did not finish the opera. He couldn't. I don't think he could do it. Very possible. Very possible. Maybe subconsciously he got there. Well, let's save um, it. Let's we'll save, we'll save, save it. it. We're yeah. saving it like the end of this glass of yes. lovely rosé. Of lukewarm rosé now. It's quite warm. It's got a good good nose on it. This was uh, delightful. Very nice. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if we should do 10 tenors and 10 shots, though. We've talked about that. So maybe we should start with th 10, 10 tenors, 10, whisk 10 best tenors, 10 best whiskeys. We so we, we, dis we discuss five. a tenor and, and then in, in the space of an hour. I'm a lightweight. I don't drink. Really? But you're not going to like start breaking up the furniture or anything, are you? No, but I'm already getting a little... I'm sure it's going to come across here. I'm getting a little... I'm in my you're cups. Not, I'm not your, in my cups. You're not slurring your words. No, I'm not anything. slurring. But I'm, I'm feeling... I'm emboldened. <laughs> well, good. It's, that's what you're supposed to be. That's this is a, this is a cultural be. review yes. program. So. Yes. Now, um, 
uh, yeah, we'll see. I'm trying to think of another. I mean, one more guilty pleasure. One more guilty pleasure. A of big an, one of an opera that I could listen to oh, an opera. time. Probably anything by Gilbert and Sullivan. Seriously, mm. I, I'm a huge. You're Savoy- a big fan. I'm a huge Savoyard. I, I, I could not. I believe less, in the really. works of Gilbert and Sullivan as a positive influence on on society and uh, in pretty much every way, and that it, it delivers, uh, along with uh, an extraordinary amount of delight, which I think is the is the essential characteristic of the music of Arthur Sullivan. It is consistently delightful. Mm. Delight to the ability to delight He's, an audience. He wrote a quite a good symphony, in my opinion. Yeah, listen to it. Yeah, he wrote some really. Good, he wrote a, some good concert overtures, some good theatrical incidental music, some good. Uh, he wrote a nice cello concerto too, mm. a cello concerto which was miraculously reconstituted from the memory of Charles McCarris after the parts had been bombed um, uh, during the war. The the the, wow. the 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 music library, I believe it was of uh, of chapels. Um, uh, got got bombed and all the parts were lost. A warehouse that they that they kept them in. And so Macaris had played the concerto, and so he knew the solo part and he knew all. He had an idea of the you know uh, a good enough idea of the of the orchestral parts to be able to put it back together. Wow! So he he wrote it out and then it was reorchestrated. That's incredible. It's a great save. Yeah, it's a great save.